encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And I'd like to begin by reading verse 11, which we touched on last week, and introduce this uh, section of 1 John. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. If you're looking at verses to memorize, that's a short one, an easy one to memorize. As we look at this passage, we're reminded once again, and we're taken really back to the roots of our new birth. I think that's what John is saying here. He's talking about the beginning of our walk with God. And he's talking about the fundamental message that we've received from God. Last week I said there's a two, there's a two part. The first part of John tells us the first part of this good news, this message. And the second part introduces us the second uh, half. We looked at God is light. First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message. God is light. And here we have this is the message that we are to love one another. And we spent a good amount of time looking at the verses in between, looking at how God is light, the practical working out of that truth in our, in our lives. And one of the things that I've said over and over, and I think you've noticed is it's a God-centered message. The good news, the gospel, is primarily about God, not primarily about us. That word message there can be translated the news or the good news even. It implies the good news or what we often say the word gospel. This is talking about the gospel here. And in the gospel, the good news is not one day you get to go to heaven. All right. A lot of times that's what we think. That's that's God, the good news. That's not the primary focus. It's it's a sub part of it. You could say it's a it's a secondary point of the good news. Uh, the good news is not I'm not going to hell. All right. But that's where a lot of people start. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not even implying that that's, if you started there that you did something wrong. We, we probably all started there because we recognize the sin in our lives. But that's where we get stuck. A lot of people come to the point in their lives, oh, I don't want to go to hell. What do I need to do? And then they're stuck there for their whole life. Their whole lives are spent doing their best not to mess up. I don't want to end up going to hell at the end of my life. Uh, as long as I keep doing the right thing or don't accidentally do the wrong thing or don't on purpose do the wrong thing, then one day I get to go to heaven. And there's really no joy in that kind of life. And that's why I know this is a, this a, it's a side issue almost. John says the good news, and I'm taking this from him, not from my thoughts. The good news is this. God is light. That's the message. It's speaking of God's character. We're looking at the character of God when we see God is light. And that's good news. It talks about who God is, what he has done for us, how God sees us, how God treats us, what God proclaims us to be. And we've spent a lot of time looking at all those things. And, mo and many of you are like, well, I don't remember. And that's why we have to repeat it. That's why we have to keep going back to it. 
because our, all of our memories are so short. It is good news to have a God who is light, to learn how he treats us, how he views us, how he sees us, what he wants us to be. That's all good. And now we're reminded in verse 11 here of chapter 3, the fundamental lesson we've all been taught. Something we've known from the first day of our new birth. I'm going to pick on you, Tracy, because your name was put up there. You're the newest Christian here. This is something you know. This is something you know. You, you knew it through teaching, and you knew it because God has put it into your heart. It's the flip side of this coin of God is light. It's God, it is that we love each other. I saw it on her face on Friday. It's something that happens to us when we become Christians, and it's almost miraculous, you can say that, but it's not. I mean, God puts it into us that suddenly we realize that we are not the center of the universe. There's something else here. There's other people around. And it's not, as I said, it's not two different things. It's the it's flip side of the same coin. We discover that part of this walking in the light, part of God is light, is we love one another. I want to reread verse 11 and going into verse 12, too. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay, the first thing I want to look at is this word love. What, what is love? You ask people on the street, just go out on the street and ask people, what is love? And you're going to get all sorts of answers here. It's the, it was the most Google search phrase in 2012. What is love? More people ask that than any other question. People are interested in this. I should have your interest right now. It's my fault if I don't. <laughs> because I'm talking about something that most people are interested in, love. And at the same time, they're confused. They don't know what it is. People, you ask different people, you know, what it means. Different people will say different things. You ask a physicist what, it's, what it, it says and the, uh, what it means, and he says it's chemistry. Literally, chemistry. If I mess up these words, forgive me if you're a chemist. Or a doctor, they'll say it's chemicals like pheromones, pheromones, dopamine, serotonin, vasopressin. I don't know what they all these things do. Other chemicals in your body, all mixing up and giving you this feeling of love. All right? A psychotherapist will say this. It's various interactions with different sets of people. So you have all different sets of types of love. It could be a flirtatious love. It could be a bond with a relative, a brother, a sister, a cousin here. Closeness with companions. Something like soldiers. There's a bond there with soldiers. Teammates, you know, playing that, that type of thing. Even the self-love. There can be some kind of self-love. So it's all various types of interactions. Ask a philosopher. He'll say it's not just one thing. And that's why it's so confusing and so elusive to try to, to explain what it is. But the bottom line is this, is some kind of passionate commitment greater than infatuation. 
Others say, you know, it's more easily experienced than defined. We just, we can't, it's so confusing, you can't define it. It's hard to define. And I kind of uh, agree with this. You can experience it, but it's hard, really difficult to define. When I think about love, it's, it's probably the most, the subject that's most written about in books, Definitely in songs, more songs about love than any other, uh, any other uh, message. Uh, I, I thought about going through a bunch of songs, but, you know, we could spend days just reading off songs that people have written about love, poetry and so on. Here are some things that people have said. Excuse the first one if it's a little offensive. Love is being stupid together. I try not to say that word. Love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. This is kind of nice. Love is when he gives you a piece of your soul that you never knew was missing. Mm. Here's my favorite. True love is like ghosts, which everyone talks about and few have seen. (laughs) You know, the definition of love is difficult to define. And yet, you know, everyone has this concept. We have a concept of love, but it's really difficult to define. Uh, like the young lady who said, you know, love is the feeling I feel when I feel that you feel the same feelings I feel for you. <laughs> but this is why we need to find out. This is why we need to discover what does, what does John mean when he says we love one another? God is actually saying this. I mean, I know John wrote it, but God is saying we love one another and we find out about God's kind of love. And so we need to find out, okay, it's hard to grasp this. So what what is he saying? And John, 35 times in this little letter, uses the word love. Now, I counted it myself, so you might count 36 or 34, but I counted 35 times that John uses this word love. And so we're going to keep going back to this, and don't blame me, blame John, because he had a reason for saying this, and God has a reason for saying this, and explaining what this love is all about. In the first part of uh, 1 John that we've covered, we've only looked at it five times. There's another 30 to go. And I thought, you know, as I struggled with this and thought about this, how, you know, I could have a lesson on love here. But I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let John define love for us. Instead of me having a lesson on love and going through that, we're just going to take it as it comes. And just whatever the context is, we're going to let John describe and help us begin to understand what love is. Sometimes we're going to see that what it is. And like today, we're going to begin to see what it is not. And that's always good, you know, to understand the... The definition of a word, sometimes you look at the opposite, the antonym instead of a synonym. You look at the opposite and you can see, oh, okay, I I get a better idea. And that's what I think John is is doing here. You know, understanding this concept of love is complex. Later on, we're going to read in chapter four, God is love. And since we'll never fully, we can never fully understand God, right? We'll never fully comprehend who God is. And so if God is love, I don't think we'll ever fully comprehend what love is. And that's why I think we're a bit confused. Not God type of love. Um, So far, let's look at a few things that we've seen. Chapter 2, verse 5. He says, 
if we keep those who keep or obey or treasure or guard, all these words mean the same thing. God's word, then God's love is made complete in, in him. So if we keep or guard or treasure or, or obey God's word, then God's love is made complete in us. Then in chapter 2, verse 15, he states it kind of in a, he states in a negative way. He says, now don't love certain things, which seems to imply or seems to be saying, don't put this as your highest priority. Don't put this in a place of importance. Don't keep or guard or treasure this. Don't treasure the world or anything that's in the world. That kind of love is going to displace God kind of love. All right? The, the two are not compatible. So you can love the world. And he says, don't do, don't do that. Don't treasure that. Don't guard that. Don't focus there. Focus on God type of love. And so the focus is like, let's focus on God's word. And we put these two together. Let's focus on God and not even focus on love, but focus on God. And when we do that, love comes. You see, he says, if you keep and treasure God's word, then God's love is going to be complete in you. It's not like you're looking for love. It's like you're focusing on God. You're, you're obeying God's word. And when we do that, without us even noticing, perhaps. We love. We begin to know what God's love is about. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm going to read this one as a high water mark of 1 John. It's, it's akin to poetry, in my opinion. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You can just meditate on that passage. Beautiful passage. This is, this is how great God's love is. He's lavished this on us. And it's, it's shown this way. He calls you child. He calls you my daughter. He calls you my son. You're my children. What great love. And that's why this is good news. This is how God looks at you. He looks at you as you are my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. And then we looked at chapter 3, verse 10. Again, it's stated in the negative. If you don't love your Christian family, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you're not a child of God. Hmm. So there's a focus on others there. So we're going to let John, as I said, define the complexity of love as we journey through the letter. And I suspect it's, it's almost like, you know, I try to think, how, how can I describe this? And I, I thought about going down to uh, Greg Cornelius's store and, and saying, let me see the finest diamond you have. He sells gold and jewelry and diamonds. I just want to look at the finest one you have. And I have looked at a fine diamond before, and you look at that, and every, you know, when the light's right, every angle you see a different color, a different sparkle, a different everything. And it's just a beautiful, uh, uh, complex stone. And I think it's almost like this. As we look at love, we're going to see one facet of it, and then a different facet, and another facet. And it's just going to be overwhelming to the point that we're not going to be able to grasp the whole thing. It's, it's somewhat elusive. And so over and over, we're going to see the outworking of love. As John, as John tries to help us see a bit more of God's love, the complexity of God's love. And part of that understanding is going to be this. You apply it to your life. You start doing things. You start putting these things into practice. And that's the best way we always learn, isn't it? When we start doing the things that we need to do, that's how you learn how to do something. Instead of just hearing it. Now I want to show, I want to show you three. I, I don't know how to say this any other ways. It's some technicalities that's going to help us appreciate this verse. 
If you have to go to sleep during the lesson, this is a good time, all right? But it will help you. I think it really will help you understand these verses if we look at these, uh, these little technicalities. In verse 11, some of your translations, my translation says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Some of them will have a word, and that word is for, okay, for. And this particular word is in the, the, the original here, the Greek that John wrote in. And it's tying the two sections together, all right? It's tying both the first section to the second section, and, and especially the context of verse 10 and verse 11. And we're not going to go into the technicalities of why. But verse 10 says this, if you don't love your brother, if you don't love your Christian family, you're not God's child. And then he ties that in with this little word, for. And in essence, he's saying the, the working out of the gospel, the working out of the message of God is tied in to loving other people. And then he repeats it down below that. If you, you, for anyone who does not love his brother, for this is the message. If you don't love your brother, you're not God's child because this is God's message. This is the good news. So if you're not doing it, you're not doing the good news. There's the tie there. It's foundational. It's not optional. This is first principles, as I said before, as I was talking about Tracy. This is something you know from the very beginning. It's not something that one day I'm going to grow into this love. I'm going to learn what this, this marvelous love is. It's the first lesson. It's the ABCs of your Christian walk. We love each other. Second, another word is missing in the NIV, and it's the word that. That. You have heard from the beginning that. And even in the English, it's kind of like, well, what, what are you trying to say here? It's not readily obvious what he's saying. But what this word is, is purpose. This is God's purpose here. That's what that word actually means. The word, uh, it's, it's God's purpose. This is God's desire is another way we could say that. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, he says, that we love one another, and this is what God wants from you. What does God want from me? What does God want me to do? God, what do you want? You want me to give 10%? Okay, I'll give 10%. You want me to go to church? Okay. God says, I want you to love each other. That's what that word means. That's why it's important. Because this is God's message. His fundamental message is He's light. And He says, and here's the application of it. Here's the working out of that. You love each other. Oh, can't you make it a little bit easier? <laughs> Sometimes loving each other is kind of hard. And lastly is that phrase that we should, and this is my own, the way I think. Sometimes when I hear that we should, it becomes optional to me. You know, that we should means, doesn't mean that we have to. We should love one another. It's just a you know, possibility that we can love each other. We'll achieve a certain spiritual maturity, and then we should do it at that time. That's kind of the way it comes across to me. Maybe it's the way I was, the way I'm made. You know, Alan, my mother says, she's not here with us today, so I can pick on her. Alan, go clean. You should clean up your room. When my mother said, well, you should clean up your room, you know, you really should study for that test. She said that to me when I took my first driver's test. You should study for it. I didn't. I failed. <laughs> you know, to me it was an option. And so when I read that, I said, we should love each other. It comes across as optional. But, all right, if, you're, if, you're, if you like grammar, 
It's a grammatical term. I can give you the term later. I'm not going to bore the majority here. But it means this. It's a definite outcome of the stated reason. It's not optional. It's what it's saying. Uh, you could almost say we must. All right. We should. We must. This is the, 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 the stated reason is this is good news. This is God's message. This is God's message. And so we must love one another. That's the good news. And we must do it. Now, he starts out by saying how we do it, by telling us how we don't do it. And we read that in verse 12. Let's look at it one, just the first part. And do not be like Cain. Now, preachers make mistakes like everyone else, but here's one of the mistakes we often make. We assume that you know what we're talking about. And there's this assumption that everyone here knows the story of Cain. And I don't think everyone here knows the story of Cain. You know, if you look at this one little section, this is really all you need to know. And this is the fundamental. He belonged to the evil one. He murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brother's actions were good. That's fine. But John, when he, and I think most of the New Testament writers, when they state something, they are pointing you back and they want you to know the story. And many of you know the story because you heard it when you were a, a, a child, but you haven't read it recently and you don't know all the little details. One man, he wrote at the same time the Apostle Paul was writing. He's a, a, um, he was a Jewish writer. Philo was his name. He wrote four books about Cain. Can you imagine that? I mean, he, this, this was important. In their day and time, in other words, John, in their day and time, part of their reading was from this man, Philo, and other writers. And the Jewish tradition, they kept going back to Cain and saying, man, there's something about this story here we, we need to talk about and look at and examine. And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look at this passage briefly, and then we're going to see some insights to it, I believe, that will help us understand this section of 1 John. As an aside, you know, the first 12, really the first 12 chapters of Genesis, I was thinking about this when Ed was sharing with us. The first part of Genesis will help you get the answers, the fundamental answers to the, the questions of life. Who are we? Who am I? Where do I come from? Are we any different than animals? I think it's important to know this because we're, we're taught in schools that we're not. Why do we have a conscience? Why do we have this ability to think? Ed's question, why is there death and sin in the world? Is there a God? What's he like? Is there any hope for anything better? All those questions and more are answered in the first part of Genesis, the first 11, 12 chapters of Genesis, in a fundamental way, and the Bible further explains it as it, as it goes along. But we get that fundamental foundation answers to questions in the first part of, of Genesis. Let's look at chapter 4. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 16 together, because that's the story. And I want to say this, too. This, this story is probably a compressed story that covered maybe two or three hundred years. I don't know. I'm just guessing there. All right, this is a short, and this is the Reader's Digest version 
of a lot of things that happened. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. How many years later? I don't know. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions, some from, the, uh, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. But you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to, to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out of the presence, uh, from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, there's a lot. There's a whole lot of stuff there. And the more I read, the more I saw. I mean, this is an amazing story. Adam and Eve, you go back, if, you, if you're not familiar, I don't want to go back, but you, know, you can read the very first account, chapters 1, 2, and 3 this afternoon. It'll take you 15 minutes maximum. You see, Adam and Eve, they're the first uh, created humans, and they sinned. And when they sinned, they were dismissed from the garden. They were cast out of the garden. They, they had to leave the Garden of Eden. And sometime later, verse 1 of chapter 4, Eve has their firstborn, Cain. I don't know how many words I read somewhere, and I, I don't want to exaggerate, but there's a, women say a lot of words every day, more than men. All right? Men say a lot of words. But women speak a lot of words, they, how they express themselves. And so in, she lived to be 900 years, just do the math, there's a lot of words. The only words that Eve is recorded is right here in verse 1. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And I always thought that she was basically saying, it's a boy. That's not what she's saying here, I don't believe. The word Cain sounds like gotten. I have gotten a man, some of the translations say, or brought forth in the Hebrew language. Eve, I believe, was looking for the fulfillment of the Messiah. Chapter 3, during the curses or the consequences that God was saying, you've sinned, this is what's happening. He's, he made a promise. He said, from your seed, Eve, there's going to come one who will crush the head of that serpent. Does that remind you something in First John? 
He's come to destroy the works of the devil. We just looked at that a few weeks ago. And so Eve is looking forward to this promise. He's looking, she's looking forward to the coming of what was later called the Messiah. The one who would crush the, the, the head of the serpent. And so when she received this firstborn son, when she gave birth to him, I believe she thought, he's the one. Why would she not think of any other? He said, from your seed, Eve, and here it is, Cain, Gaiten. I've received him. And so I believe what she's saying is not, it's the boy, it's I got him, the Lord. This is the one. You know, if she lived as long as Adam, we don't know, 900 some odd years, she had to die in disappointment and heartbreak over Cain. She had a lot of hope for that little boy. She thought he'd grow up and be the one to crush Satan's head. And she crushed, he crushed her heart, killed her other son. But notice here, there was a place in a sacrifice. We notice that Cain and his brother Abel knew of a place to make an offering. And you get that from different words. It says they brought to the Lord. They brought to the Lord. They brought it to a place. And this wasn't something they figured out themselves. They didn't arbitrarily say, you know, we need to do something. We need to, maybe we need to sacrifice. That, that will make God on our side or something. Uh, every now and then, let's, let's just let's do an offering. But this is not something made up. This comes from direction. The Lord and His grace has allowed people to come to Him. It talks about coming to the presence of the Lord. And it's supported in verse 11, 16 later when it says, Cain left the presence of the Lord. He left the place. He had to go away. But they were bringing things to that place before. Where was this place? Where was the place they went? I think we have a hint here. It's the presence of the Lord. If you look at verse 24 of chapter 3, just one verse back, we see a little bit about this place. You know, when mankind sinned, God did not leave the earth. We, this is, I think, culturally, we, we get this in our mind. It's not what the Bible says, but we get this in our mind. When man sinned, God left. When man sinned, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he stayed in the garden. Something like that. Or he went back to heaven. He let angels deal with mankind. The idea that God cannot dwell in the presence of sin is not supported in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Genesis and, and on through. It's the Lord who spoke to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Think about this. Adam and Eve sinned, and God didn't say, I can't do anything there. He actually comes back to the garden. He speaks to Adam and Eve. He provides clothing from them, from animal skins. What do you think animal skins were? I believe that was, he was teaching them, this is what death is. Let me show you, and this is how you're going to sacrifice. He slit the throats. Of two animals. And he showed them death. And he showed them how to skin those, those animals, whatever they were, and make clothing on them. When they left the garden, they left with the sacrifice on their own body. As a foreshadow of the sacrifice that's on us. When we are baptized into Christ, we are clothed with Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is our sacrifice. We are clothed with the bloody sacrifice. Of Jesus. 
on us. And they were clothed with the, clothed with the bloody sacrifice of animals as they left the Garden of Eden. What is this presence? I, I thought the easiest way for me to do this is to read from a, a commentary by the man of name of Arthur Pink. And he first quotes this translation, and I think it's accurate, I think it's good, where he says, And he, God, this is from chapter 3, verse 24, dwelt at the east of the Garden of Eden, between the cherubim as a Shekinah, that's the glory of God, the outlighting of God, a fire tongue or a fire sword, to keep open the way to the tree of life. It's not so much that God was saying, I'm going to, to keep you away from it, but he's saying, I'm going to keep open the way to the tree of life. You can't come right now, but it's going to be open to you. He then goes on to say this, explaining it. Genesis 3.24 would seem to imply, would seem to signify, that having expelled man from the garden, God established a mercy seat, protected by the cherubim. The fire tongue or sword being the symbol of divine presence. And whoever would worship God must approach this mercy seat by way of sacrifice. As I thought about this, went through this, this um, chapter, this, these 16 verses and thought about them, I said, wow, God, the character of God is revealed here. We see something about God here. And I think this is what John wants to see. He wants us to see something about God as we look at how we are not to act. And it's important to gain some insights. Many people think God is angry with mankind. They're out of his presence. He kicks them out of his presence. He abandons Adam and Eve. He punishes them. And yet we see the loving kindness made evident from this story. There is punishment. It's called death. And all the facets of death are attached to that. We see it in the curse in chapter 3. All the facets of death is there. All the consequences of death that he gives in chapter 3. But you know, God did not abandon man. He arranged sacrifice, first of all, for man. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to, keep, I'm going to keep the way open so you can come. Communion is still open. Communication is open. What do we hear from the very beginning? God is speaking. God is speaking to man. No doubt he spoke to Abel sometime, but there's no record of him speaking to Abel. Abel was the righteous. He was doing the right thing. He was doing what God wanted him to do. And there's no record of God ever speaking to him. But the sinner, the bad person, the one who was doing wrong, God speaks to him. And notice how he does this, how he speaks to him. Verse 6. Why are you angry? And I guess you could read in different tones of voice. Have you ever asked your child that? How do you ask your child that? And this could be personality, I know. But you know, if a child's upset, what do we say? What's wrong? Why are you upset? Why are you so angry? Isn't it a loving response from a loving parent to go to a child and say, well, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? We don't come in and you know, screaming, well, I hope you don't, coming in and screaming and hollering, what's wrong with you? I can't believe you're angry. Well, because you taught me how to be. <laughs> That's not what we do. God, I don't believe, came to Cain with thunder and lightning and 
punishment at this time. Hey, Cain, what's wrong? Why are you so angry? Why why is your face downcast? Why do you have have such a sad expression on? See, God's love here is loving kindness. Adam and Abel and Cain, they approached, I believe, Eden. They were cast out of Eden. But just to the east, they didn't go very far. They were just to the east of Eden. And there they go with their sacrifice. There they communicate with God. There, just over the hill, is the tree of life. They can't go to it right now. But it's there. There's hope. There's hope in this chapter. God is keeping the way of the tree of life open. And he says, it's going to be available. And they're approaching him. And they know just over the hill, the tree of life. And if you go to Genesis, uh, not Genesis, if you go to the opposite side of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 22, one of the very last verses in the, in the, in the Bible. You know what it talks about? Let me show you. He t- I mean, it ties the, the first part of the Bible to the last part of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 14, and we're right, near, I mean, there's only 21 verses in that chapter. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right Wow, to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. That's what Abel and Cain wanted to do. That's what Adam and Eve wanted to do. They came to the very gate and God said, not now. You're offering sacrifices, that's right. And that tree of life is just over the hill, but not now. There's another sacrifice coming. There's another sacrifice coming. And when you do that, when you wash your robes, you have the right to enter the garden. You have the right to go back where we, where we started from. You see, God is, God is, through Christ, recreating what man lost. He's bringing us back to the garden. And the tree of life isn't a tree, a physical tree. It's Jesus. He's the tree of life. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. It all comes together. There's hope. God communicated also what's right and wrong. Look at verse 4. It says, uh, Abel brought, you know, what, uh, Abel, uh, Abel brought the fat portions. And it says, God looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. In other words, he's saying, Abel, that's right. Cain, that's wrong. All right? He, and we do this with our children. We say, that's right. That's good. Do that. No, don't do that. That's wrong. And right here, God is doing the same thing. He's communicating to them. He's telling them what's right, what's wrong. Cain is not left in the dark. He can't, he can't say, well, I never knew. No one ever told me. God is telling them. And we see God's patience here. God warns Cain. He tells him, look, look at, uh, and we, we, we may go more in uh, depth later. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do the right thing, it's going to be fine. But if you don't do what's right, oh, please, Cain, listen to me. Sin's right there by the door. It wants to have you. It wants to destroy you. Don't go down that path. Have you, have you ever told your children that? Don't do that. Don't get into a car with someone drinking. Have you ever, I, I told my kids that. I told my kids, if you're out, friends are drinking, and everyone's getting in the car, you call me. I'll come get you. I'll come get you, and we won't even talk. We, there'll be no punishment. Or I'm not going to whip you because you called me. I'm going to come rescue you. I'm going to come get you. Or you call a taxi. I'll pay the taxi when it gets there. Don't do that. 
Because this is what happens. You get in a car with someone drinking, someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get killed. Don't do that. That's what he's saying to, to Cain. Cain, don't do that. I love you too much. Don't go down that path. Sin's right there at the door. You have a responsibility here. I'm not going to make you do anything. You've got to do it, Cain. He says right here, but you must master it. You've got to do this. You've got to make that decision. You've got to do what's right. And I'm on your side, Cain. I want you to do what's right. All that's there in this first part. And there's a whole lot more. A whole lot more. We're not going to spend four volumes of, in Cain, I promise you. Maybe. And this is important because what John is saying, he's saying, this is how you don't act. All right? This is what you don't do. When, you, when we come to love, I'm telling you, don't do this. It's going to destroy everything. It's dangerous. Sin is crouching at your door here. Don't do this. And that's what I want us to see today. We have a Father who loves us. We have a Father who's, He says, you're my child. I love you. He gives us light because He is light. He's patient with us. He teaches us. He loves us. He's on our side. Do you believe that you serve a God that's on your side? Or someone that you're just, you, that's against you? We culturally, I think we grow up believing that God is against us. And we've got to do something to fix everything. And he says, no, I'm for you. And I'm going to fix it for you. And that's why I gave you my sons, because I want to fix it for you. I'm on your side. I love you. I don't want you to go down that path. I want you to go down this path. Here's the path. It's the way, the truth, the life. It's Jesus. I want you to go there because that's the best thing. That's the safest thing. It's the most wonderful thing. It's the only thing. Don't go down that path there. Sin is crouching at your door. And when all is said and done, you know what God says? Love each other. That's what I want you to do. And we're like that with our children, aren't we? Nothing is more heartbreaking than children who fight. And I'm not talking about a little fussing and fighting. You know, that's easy to take care of. You flick the ear. <laughs> Sorry, it's not abuse. Don't worry. You know, that fussing and fighting. But, you know, here was the unthinkable, the tragedy. Cain, out of jealousy, killed his brother. I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine the heartbreak of Adam and Eve with their own son murdering their other son. It must break our father's heart when we fuss and fight. And he says this, look, just love each other. Love each other. That's what God calls us to do. Because it's the best thing for us. We're actually beginning to put into practice the love of God in our lives when we love each other. And through the rest of this book, as I said, 30 times, you're going to come back. I hope you don't get tired of it because it's God giving you a lesson. If you get tired of it, your problem might be you're too much like Cain. <laughs> well, that's a guilt trip, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's be people of faith. Let's learn how to love each other. Let's learn to be like our Father who's patient, kind to us, and let's extend that to one another. Our elders will come.